0: Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, Please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. Given the news feeds and everything going on in society, I decided as pastor it's finally time to start preaching through the book of Revelation. Uh, (laughs) Don't get too excited. Uh, We're in one small section uh, with some real pertinent stuff, I believe. Beginning a brand new series on... Uh, there's seven churches that are addressed specifically in the book of Revelation, and so we're going to be working our way through each of those in the next seven weeks, and so we come to the first church that Jesus addresses, the church in the city of Ephesus. So our text this morning is the book of Revelation, chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, and this is God's word to a church long ago, but it is still God's word to us today also. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet, I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you. And remove your lampstand from its place. But you do have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God." And Father God, we ask for the work of your Holy Spirit today to take your word and to teach and instruct us. May we hear those words to us here at Oak Park, just like those at Ephesus heard the words so long ago. Father God, I pray for you to honor the reading and the teaching of your word today by the work of your Spirit to take your message and plant it deeply within the minds and the hearts of each of us who are gathered here in these moments, and those who will be watching a recorded version later on. Lord, you already know, you've already ordained every eye and every ear that will see and hear what is done here today. And Lord, as you speak and as you work, I pray that we will be restored to our first love, Lord, I pray for a continual attitude of repentance for those of us who believe in you and love you, constant uh, leaning on the Spirit and evaluating our motives and our habits and everything else. As always, Lord God, I ask for my words not to get in the way of your word, but for you to work, to speak, to bring glory to yourself as Jesus, our Savior, our Lord, your Son, O Father God, is lifted up And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated, except, well, actually, go ahead and take a seat for a second. All right. Today is Father's Day, and so we do traditionally honor dads. Um, So if you are a dad, uh, if you have been given the task by God of of being a father for someone, a biological, adopted, what doesn't doesn't matter. A dad is a dad. Would you please stand so we can at least give you a momentary recognition (laughs) and some applause. And if the rest of the guys would stand up as well. As a church, we champion a couple of things. Number one, uh, fatherhood, because, well, God is Father, and there's a specific call upon, uh, upon some men to, to be fathers and to reflect God in the lives of, of children. That's very important. But their thing is every man is a child and a son of God, of their heavenly Father. And there is no more dire calling in our world right now for men to be men of God. Because our homes, our cities, our states, our nation and our world is crying out for godly masculine representation in a world where that is just so utterly undermined and there's just so much confusion on it. So guys, challenged men, Fight the good fight of faith. Give allegiance to Jesus first and foremost. Follow God wholeheartedly. Take responsibility. Serve the Lord. All right. Thank you, man. You may be seated. And it's a super cool gift this year too. It's a, it's a keychain that we're handing out to all guys, and it's got a knife on it. So. Just what every guy needs is another thing to, you know, to cut something with or whatever. Good stuff, though. They're pretty cool this year. Anyway, now back to the book of Revelation and these seven churches. I think it goes without saying that the book of Revelation is the most misunderstood and misused book in the entire Bible, and most of the issues stem from either intentionally Or unintentionally skewing the purpose and the language of the book to fit preconceived ideas and agendas. There's a lot in that opening statement. When COVID was beginning to hit, what was one of the major things that popped up on social media? It's the sign of the end times. Revelation is happening before our eyes. There was post after post. There was just an immense, enormous emphasis on looking back at the book of Revelation or looking at Revelation and trying to see, is this one of the signs of the times? Big emphasis. For those of you who lived through the 1980s, You'll remember certain people like Hal Lindsey and, and uh, Grant Jeffries and Jack Van Impey and, and some guys like that of way back in the day who were just uh, proponents and selling books and packing out seminars about the 1980s was the countdown to Armageddon, and that was the end of the world. And then if you made it through the 80s, we came to what was going to be the year 2000, Y2K, Right? and the banking systems are going to shut down. Computers won't be able to operate. We're going back to the Stone Age. It's a sign of Armageddon. All the stuff about the end of the world. Obviously, all of those things were wrong and false, right? There is so much fear-mongering, and there is so much, there is so much read into the book of revelation that it is now almost impossible to take this book and simply read through it at face value and allow it to speak almost i i'm I'm almost willing to bet that every one of us who has an interest in the book of revelation or goes to the book of revelation we go there with one purpose in mind we want to see what's going to happen next right we want to see what's coming next. What's the next sign to look for? We want to know how close we are to the return of Jesus. That may not be exactly the main point of the book of Revelation. It's there. But if we're looking at it in that skewed lens, we're going to miss so much of the meaning and the power and the purpose of the book. The book itself is the last written book in the New Testament. It was written towards the end of the first century. It was written by the last living of Jesus' 12 original disciples, the disciple John, the one who was transformed from son of thunder to apostle of love. After a long life of serving and suffering immensely for Jesus, Torturing, imprisonment, interrogations, beating, exile, abandonment, betrayal, everything that John went through in his life, in his ministry. As he is nearing the end of his natural earthly days, and he was the only of Jesus' 12 disciples to basically die of natural causes, even though his body had been beaten and broken in so many ways for simply following Jesus Near the end of his life, as a very aged man, he is exiled to basically a prison island, a small, rocky, uh, desolate, barren island called Patmos. It was in the Aegean Sea. It was used as a dumping ground by the Roman Empire for political prisoners, rabble-rousers, enemies of the state, and things like that. While John is there in another season of suffering, simply because he believed Jesus rose from the dead, he is granted the privilege of a, of a visitation, of a, of a revelation, of a seeing, of an experience where the Lord speaks to him to show him what is now and what may take must take place. He is given a revelation, not of the end times. He is not given a revelation of of all the worldly events that have to happen in the sequence in the order. No, he's given a revelation of Jesus Christ. The book of Revelation is a revealing of Jesus. We, We have the four gospels. We have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They reveal Jesus as God in the flesh who came to live among us to minister, to serve, to to preach, teach, and heal. After he preached and after he taught and after he healed, he was crucified. After he was crucified and he died, he was buried. And after he was buried, he rose from the dead. And after he rose from the dead, he spent time with his disciples, preparing them and empowering them to go and preach the gospel to begin his church. And after that season, he was then, he was then ascended into heaven to sit, to sit at the right hand of God the Father, to reign and to rule, to bring all of creation under the subjection of his rule. Revelation is that picture, is that scene of who Jesus is now, of what Jesus is doing now, of him in his glory reigning and ruling amidst the chaos and the rebellion of the world. That's what the book of Revelation is. To show him, to show his, to to, to show God gave him, to show his servants the things that must soon take place. Revelation consists in the book of three different styles of writing, literarily. And these are so important to remember because it was a document after all. And documents take certain forms and have certain characteristics. It was an epistle, just like all of the Apostle Paul's letters to churches and to individuals, to the churches of Galatia, to the church in Ephesus, to the church in Colossae to his young protege, Timothy, and to his young protege, Titus. What John writes is a letter, a letter to a specific group of churches. These were real churches in a real place, in a real timeline in the first century. We've got a map where it shows where they are. You see the, the modern nation of Turkey. Well, all of these seven towns and these seven cities are on the, basically what is now western Turkey. We begin in Ephesus because it was the most major of all of them, I and mean, it was the port city. Everything originated from there. It was a huge hub. And there was, there was, a, there was, a, there was a trade route and, and easy travel between all of these. But these were seven cities where the church of Jesus Christ lived and operated and worshipped and served and suffered. Some struggled. Some thrived. We're going to look at all of them. But it's a letter written to real churches, real people, in real time, in the first century. And it was written to encourage those people, to strengthen those people, to undergird their faith and their determination to live for Jesus in the face of overwhelming cultural, economic, and political odds. So Revelation is written to real people in the first century, it was not written just for the end time generation, and that's where we often fall into that trap. We think oh, Revelation was written for us. Here's the, one of the wildest things about the Book of Revelation: every single generation for the last 2,000 years has read the Book of Revelation. So oh, it's written to us, every single one. And that's true because we are. We are since the resurrection of Jesus. We are living in the last days. The last days may be 2,000 years. It may be 10,000 years. We don't know, but we are in the last days. It is the last epoch, the last era of human history. The final revelation of God to his people is Jesus. And however long God the Father determines for that time period to be until everybody is brought to faith that can be brought to faith God the Father is the one who determines that. But it's a letter. It was written to specific people, a specific audience, and the primary application pertains to them. And they were able to understand it a lot better than us, actually. But as I said, with all of the Scriptures, due to the fact that the Scriptures are alive through the power of the Holy Spirit, the Scriptures, as God's Word is living, therefore... When we do read it, our spirits are quickened. Our spirits have that sensitivity of like, oh, this is happening today. This is what's really going on. This is, this is God speaking to us. That's the power of God's Word. It is living. It is active. It is powerful. That's why it is so relevant and will remain relevant to every generation. So the book is first off, it's a letter a letter to real churches and real people at a real point in time. It is also prophetic. It is actually in the the prophetic or the prophecy genre. We hear the word prophecy and we automatically think predicting the future. That is not the meaning of prophecy. Prophecy is to speak God's truth, God's perspective Because God's truth is the truth. God's reality is the real reality. We are living in something that is unreal. A world dominated by sin. A world outside of the will of God. A world oversaw by the the father of lies. That's why there is deceit. That's why there is deception. That's why there is so much confusion. The whole world is under the control of the evil one. Who is the evil one? The evil one is Satan. Satan is the father of lies. That's why there's so much cloudiness and darkness and deception and deceit in our world. One of the funniest things going on in debate right now is in mass communication, it's, it's misinformation or disinformation. And there's this huge debate about what's, what's correct communication and what's misinformation, what's disinformation. The reality is, 99% of it's all disinformation, both sides because none of it speaks from God's truth God's truth is the real truth so to prophesy and in a book of prophecy means it's revealing God's truth God's perspective now some aspects of that are predictive God stands outside of time so God is able, when, he's, when God's working, it's in our time frame, but he's also working ahead of us, and all of these things that boggles the mind, physicists, national physics, all kinds of stuff that still can confuse them as well. But God stands outside of time. So yes, some of what God reveals as truth will be predictive for us because God's plan is already in place. God's plan is already set. God is not adjusting on the fly. He's got it. Revelation is not a roadmap of the end times. It is a reminder of who controls time. Thirdly, the book of Revelation is apocalyptic. Apocalyptic simply means to remove the veil, an unveiling, a disclosing, a revealing of that which was hidden. Therefore, the purpose of the book is to reveal that which was hidden or obscured. It's the reality behind the reality. It's the, the inside story. It's the behind the scenes, so to speak. That's what Revelation truly is. And it's through utilizing symbolism, which was, which was common of the genre. And yes, there were many apocalyptic books written about the work of God in the world and about the end times and about different theories and conspiracies and all of that. the, the, The literature of that time is rife with this genre of attempting to speak on behalf of God or God's perspective. But they utilize symbolism. But the symbolism is to make things clearer, not more confusing. Going back to chapter 1 of Revelation, John actually lays this out and he even explains something. Jesus tells John to write this, write therefore what you have seen, what is now and what will take place later. Therefore we get the interpretive grid. We have to look first at what Revelation says and apply it to what is now in the 1st century. That's the audience and then what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So you're reading Revelation, there's stars, there's lampstands. That is metaphorical, symbolic language of the church. Here is the really freaky, really trippy idea. This is the revelation. This is God's truth. Every congregation that is centered and founded upon Jesus Believing in his death for our sins, his resurrection to life for the gift of eternal life. Every body of believers, no matter how large or how small, Jesus said, where two or three are gathered, I am there in their midst, right? Every congregation has an angel of the church. We've got an angel that is assigned to Oak Park Christian Church terrifying and strangely comforting at the same time hopefully when his you know when he goes back to talk shop with the other angels he's like oh you're not gonna believe what that church did today (laughs) could could you imagine all the angels in heaven on break in the break room holy cow you're not gonna believe what they're doing now and the other is like oh you're not gonna believe man man these followers of jesus boy they're getting it together they're loving one another. They're loving the Lord. They're serving people. Oh, they're repentant of sin. Man, can you imagine the, the, the stories the angels tell? But there, there's an angel assigned to every church. And then there's the image of the lampstand. The lampstand is the light. And Jesus says, you are the light of the world. Shine forth your light so that others may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. But here's also the really trippy, really scary thing. Jesus can and will pronounce judgment upon churches and he will remove the lampstand. He will remove the light. Every one of these seven churches no longer exists. Some survive for hundreds of years, others a little bit of a shorter time. None of these churches Survived. Their lampstand was taken, either through judgment or simply they had fulfilled God's purpose in their time, in that place, in that region. But we as a church need to always humbly, repentantly beg God to keep our lampstand so that we will be a light to this community. And it only comes through allegiance to Jesus, to Jesus, and fidelity to His Word, standing firm against the cultural tides. You see how Revelation begins to show God's truth, what's really happening in the real reality. We don't, we don't see angels. We don't have a, we don't have an, an actual lampstand. That we we cart around like an ark of a covenant. (laughs) But in the real reality, He is here. The angel is here. The Spirit of God is here. Our lampstand is here in the midst of us as a church family. That's the unseen reality. It's Jesus speaks to the church in Ephesus. Boy, Ephesus was quite a city, too. It was a leading city in Asia Minor, which is now modern-day Turkey. We we showed you the map. It was a port city, and you know everything that goes along with a port city, right? It was a hub of major east-west trade. It was wealthy, a wealthy commercial, cultural, and philosophical center, had a population of more than 250,000 people. Large city. And, and, And the people of Jesus were there. The city, though, was overrun with idolatry, immorality, and the occult. Those things dominated daily life. Ephesus was the location of the temple of Artemis. The Greek version was Artemis. The Roman version was Diana. The temple was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Artemis was the Greek goddess of wild animals, the moon, and the protectress. That's a hard word to say. The protectress of the household. In other words, fertility because that was whatever goddesses were worshipped. That always what what it came down to in the ancient world. Now, the temple of Artemis was four times the size of the Parthenon in Athens. That means it was ginormous. Actually, the ruins are still there today. This is what's left of the great temple of Artemis. And you can see an artist's rendition with our next picture here of what what it would have looked like back in the day. The followers of Jesus worshipped Jesus in the shadow of that. In the shadow of the goddess of lust and sex, virility, procreation, whatever. That structure. That worship, which, by the way, employed temple prostitutes as part of, as part of their worship, you know, that's, that's going to church in a much different sense of the word. That's what the Christians that Jesus writes to, that's their daily reality. That's what they saw every day. That's what the majority of perhaps their families, the majority of their extended family, the majority of their friends, their neighbors were all involved in an orientation of life towards worship of Artemis. Not only was the worship, the temple was huge, the worship was, was huge, the worship was very sexual as well. It was also the leading bank of the entire region. Can you, can you imagine being a follower of Jesus and you've got an idea for a small business, you wanna open up a little shop, you have a little bit of a trade, you wanna be able to make some income. On. So where are you gonna to go to, to put your money or to, or to get a small loan? Let's go down to the pagan temple. Let's get some of that good pagan money to fund the kingdom of God. But that was their reality. That was just life. That's what they had to deal with in the face of these things. The city of Ephesus was so deeply steeped in the occult, uh, the the dark arts, the, the magical practices, things like that, that... In the Greek language, the slang word for occultic books, magic books, casting of spells, all those kinds of things, the slang word, was those kind of books were called the Ephesian letters. So you have idolatry. You have immorality. You have this, this overwhelming spiritual darkness of delving in to those things from the other kingdom. The false kingdom, the kingdom of Satan. That was the reality for these Christians that Jesus writes to. Into this world, the apostle Paul came. There were Jews there. They had a small synagogue. And so, so Paul goes to the synagogue, starts telling the Jewish people about Jesus. Some of them believe. Some of them are intrigued. Paul goes on his way, as he often did. And there's people left behind who have now believed in Jesus. There's a ministry couple, uh, Priscilla and Aquila, a husband and wife team. They evidently were there for a while helping the church get started or get undergirded, begin, helping the church get growing and going. Sometime later, the apostle Paul returned, and it is in Ephesus that's actually his longest located ministry. He loved to travel. He was a traveling evangelist. He was a traveling apostle. He would go to places and start churches and get them them initiated, and then he would leave, and he would leave teams in place to build them up. But Ephesus was pretty much his only pastorate. Three years he was there in the shadow of the temple of Artemis. In the midst of all of that darkness, Paul was there for three years growing and expanding the church his ministry was marked by miracles, amazing acts of repentance, because boy, there was a lot to repent from, huh? Amazing acts of repentance. He created a citywide riot, and also deep friendship with the church's elders, a band of brothers, arm in arm for three years shepherding the flock, protecting the flock from the idolatry, from the immorality, from the occultic practices, standing strong for Jesus. And that's the only picture we get in, in, the, in the New Testament is when Paul left. The, the elders knew he was, he was not returning because the clock on his life was already ticking. And we have this beautiful picture of, 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 of these men of Jesus weeping together because they had served together. And they knew that this was their last time, this side of eternity, that they would be serving Jesus together. It's a beautiful, it's a powerful image. But Ephesus was where the Apostle Paul was the pastor. And no other churches really got that privilege. And not only was it Paul, later in life, the Apostle John was there as well. That's where he ended up later in life, that's where he died. So the church in Ephesus had so much going for it. Port City and the Apostle Paul's pastoring, the Apostle John being a pastor there as well. This was a church that, man, had every, every opportunity to live completely and wholeheartedly for Jesus. And to be honest, they did a good job. Jesus commends them. Jesus is pretty effusive in his praise for this church. I know your good deeds, your hard work. You're doing good things. You're doing the right things. You are serving me. And that was good. They worked hard. He commends them for persevering, for staying pure in the face of all that they faced every single day of life. He admits, he recognizes that they had persevered and they had endured hardships. In the midst of a culture that is so steeped in the immorality, the idolatry, and the, the, the satanic world, the, the occultic stuff, how many friendships were lost? How many family relationships were severed because light cannot coexist with darkness? How many people lost their businesses How many many Christian brothers and sisters suffered economically because the the, the main flow of money was tied up in the worship of a pagan deity? Jesus goes, I know you've suffered. You've endured hardships. And Jesus commends them. They faced strong cultural pressures and they remained steadfast. He commends the church on their, their doctrinal purity, their moral purity as well. He mentions that they had tested people who claimed to be apostles and found them to be false. The ancient world was rife with this, just like the modern world is as well. Many people claiming to be apostles, yet they are false. Most of the time, claiming to be apostle is the first sign that you are false and you're not an apostle They had wrong beliefs about Jesus. They denied or diminished his deity. They denied or diminished his humanity. And Paul deals with them, and the Apostle Peter deals with them in his letters as well. Jesus specifically says, Good job on hating the Nicolaitans. Who are the Nicolaitans? Well, they were a small cultic group that evidently engaged in sexual licentiousness. After all, God is gracious. God has forgiven. We are free in Jesus. They embraced some of the the ideas that because grace is so free and effusive, what is done in the body doesn't matter because after all, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So if the spirit is connected to God, the flesh can do whatever it wants. Right? Right? It makes perfect sense, it's just not true. So it was a group that caused some problems, not only this church, but another one a little bit later that we'll see. But in the midst of all these good, Jesus says, but I still have something against you. You've left your first love. Return to the love you had at first. And man, boy, have commentators and theologians just poured ink and sweat over what exactly does this mean? The best that I can come up with is that in some way, the personal passion of faith was missing. When you are living for Jesus and serving Jesus, I will admit, it is pretty easy to get caught up in the good that you're doing. The good works become ends in themselves. The the, the suffering for Jesus becomes a a marker of, of success and pride. I'm serving for Jesus. My crown is getting more stones on it in heaven because I'm being persecuted. And we can get so wrapped up in doing good things that we kind of miss the point that the point is Jesus Himself. And maybe this is what was happening in Ephesus Jesus saying, I love all the good you're doing and thank you. I'm glad you're standing strong. But where's the love? Where's the passion? the humbleness, the gratitude, the thankfulness, the humility, whatever it may be. Return to the love you had at first. Repent. And that's the message to every Christian, constantly repenting, constantly seeing where we are and returning our gaze to Jesus and looking more and more to him. Call to repentance, then there's a promise. To the one who is victorious or the one who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life. Perhaps the words of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew bring this in even some more clarity. Jesus says, Because of the increase in wickedness, the love of most will grow cold, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. Paul says, run the race in such a way as to get the prize. Jesus, in a couple of different places, says, he who stands strong or stands firm to the end will be saved. Salvation is not just a one moment in time. It's not just a get-into-heaven-free card that we get when we repent or we confess or we, or we get baptized or whatever it may be. Salvation is a lifelong relationship that begins here is built here and then transitions into eternity when the flesh is put off we got to stand strong to the end don't let the love grow cold don't let the lamp stand burn out or be taken away because the focus is no longer on jesus If we stand firm to the end, if we continue to work, if we continue to endure, if we continue to persevere with a heart full of love for the Lord, we will. We will see that tree. We will partake of that tree. We will be in that relationship. And it's beautifully pictured in Revelation 22. Go ahead and read it. Get excited. That's what awaits all who stay faithful. So what is Jesus' message to the church In Grover Beach to Oak Park Christian Church. First off, as a church as a whole, is Jesus our first love? This is the hill I will die on, pointing to Jesus. But for each of us who make up the Oak Park Christian Church family, is Jesus your first love? What about the relationships? What about the good deeds? Those are all great. We need those. Those are wonderful. But don't mistake good deeds and good works for passionate faith. Enjoy the relationships with one another, but don't substitute the relational camaraderie and the love we have for one another. Don't substitute it for the love of the Lord that he has for you and that you are to have for him. Put Jesus first? Does Jesus have your heart along with your head and your hands? Number two, are you heading for victory? Determined and dependent equals victorious. The race is one when we determine to finish. When we decide that nothing is going to knock us out, nothing is going to take us out. <laughs> have you seen one of the things I love on, on, on social media? So much of it is just absolute garbage, and, and it's terrible. I don't recommend it for spiritual growth. But there are some really good things on there. And one of the things I, I love seeing is like, uh, so, so you, know, you have men or women who are running, they're, they're doing the track thing, and that's just, that's just good heavens. Why would anybody do that? It's a terrible thing to do to a body. But um, I know I need to run more, definitely. But when you're running, and then all of a sudden, one of the guys or one of the women get a cramp, and they go down, or they trip, and they fall. And man, when, when they get back up, they ain't going to win, but they're going to finish, right? Right? And there's guys and there's women who'll just, they're dragging a completely dead leg across the finish line. Or even better still, um, there's things with, with another racer will stop, put the arm around the shoulder, and they will walk and crawl and limp together to the finish line. That's the charge. <laughs> isn't it? As an individual believer, if Satan's trying to knock you out, if you're you're getting a leg cramp, if you're you're getting disabled in some way, if you're under attack, say, man, I am going to stand up. I am going to fight. Paul says, when you've done everything to stand in Ephesians 6, when you've done everything to stand against the, the devil's attacks, you know what he says to do? When you've done everything to stand, stand therefore. You keep standing. You get up. You fight. And then the church, the church is to come alongside, shoulder to shoulder, arm in arm, supporting one another across the line, staying faithful to death. And I will give you the right to eat of the tree of life. Eternity with our Lord, with one another. That's Jesus' message from 2,000 years ago to today.